uh, Will Duvall. I'm the lead pastor here at West Hills. Uh, if you're new, it's great to have you with us. This morning, as I said, we're continuing a three-part um, mini-sermon series within our larger walk together through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, this is going to be part two on physical healing, specifically. And I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward. Speaking of money, almost, almost forgot the offering. With our special announcement, we're a little out of order, but ushers, if you guys want to go ahead and send those uh, baskets as we start. Uh, Part two on physical healing, and we acknowledged last Sunday that although uh, we may try and avoid the topic of healing altogether in the church today because of the difficult questions that it raises for us, questions like, why was supernatural healing so prevalent in biblical times but not today? Does God even still work healing miracles today? We know obviously God can still do those things. Does he do it? And if so, what role does faith play in healing? If I pray for healing and God doesn't provide it, does that mean there's something lacking in my faith or in the faith of the sick person for whom I'm praying? And if God's will is going to be done regardless, then why pray at all? These are big, tough questions. But fortunately, the Bible doesn't shy away from them. And we find nine passages in the Gospel of Mark alone on this subject of physical healing. And so last week we examined the first four. This morning we're going to unpack another four together. And then next Sunday we'll zoom in on our final healing story, my favorite from Mark chapter 2 together. But let's start this morning with a quick recap of last week's four texts and four takeaways. So passage number one, in Mark 1, 29 through 31, we saw Jesus' first healing miracle, and our first takeaway was that healing is important, but it is not most important. And that's a recurring theme through a lot of these points that we'll get even this morning. I offered Mark's chronology as evidence that before Jesus ever healed anyone, he first emphasizes the greater importance of God's word, God's calling, personal character, the gospel, Christian community, and especially our need for spiritual healing from the disease of sin. Those subjects are all foregrounded in Mark chapter 1 and in Jesus' ministry before we hear anything about healing. In passage 2, later in Mark chapter 1, we hear Jesus being moved with pity for a leper who recognizes that he can only be healed if Jesus wills it. And so our second takeaway was that healing must be a gift of a compassionate God. Healing is ultimately up to God, not me, not the person I'm praying for. It's God. God must will it. And oftentimes he does because he's gracious and he's compassionate. And yet, even when God doesn't choose to heal us physically, that makes him no less God, no less loving and good because he has already healed us and provided for us in the most important eternal way, and that is spiritually. And because of that healing, We who have had our sins forgiven by grace through faith in Christ need not fear even death because we know that death is just a physical passing that means we get to go home to heaven, to be with Jesus forever. As Paul said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. It's a win-win. If I'm here in the body, I get to be used by God as an instrument of his healing in others' lives. What a blessing. But when I'm finally taken home, that's going to be even better. So passage number three in Mark chapter three, 
the Pharisees would have stopped Jesus from healing on the Sabbath because that didn't fit with their theology. And so he said healing is deeply theological. And while we reject the doctrinal perversions of Christian science, of the name it and claim it, word of faith movement, that overemphasize the role of faith in healing, we also must be careful not to limit the ways that God can and does sometimes still use us to play our part, our role in his healing of others. So James 5 exhorts us, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with the oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And so we are called not to shirk away, not to overqualify our prayers, our petitions of God, but to pray boldly for others who are hurting and trust God with the rest. And finally, our fourth passage and takeaway, Mark 5, last week, Verses 22 to 43, we met a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, an impossible medical case, surpassed only by a dead girl in the subsequent passage. And we saw Jesus with a word. And in the case of the bleeding woman, less than a word, she grabs his cloak and without Jesus seemingly even knowing what's going on, he almost accidentally heals her. Jesus is just too restorative for his own good. He heals them both. Healing is always possible with Jesus, number four. In his resurrection, Jesus proves that he has already conquered the greatest enemy of all, not just physical death, but the even more formidable spiritual death, sin and the power of hell itself, defeated by Jesus. And so we can have confidence that there is no case that is beyond Jesus' ability to heal. And so now to those four principles, we're going to add four more this morning. So would you pray with me as we ask God to bless the reading and study of his word. Father, we come to you now again, boldly asking you to open our eyes this morning to the truths and the power of your word. Father, we need to hear a word from you this morning not from me, from you. I pray that your words would shine through, come through in this sermon this morning, that we would hear from you, that in the same way that you inspired and opened the eyes and ears and hearts of Mark, the other writers we're going to examine in your word this morning, you would do a work again this morning an inspiring work again to open our eyes and minds and hearts to hear from you. Father, we need you. We need you desperately. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Point number five, healing is also an expectation with Jesus. Now, this is the most easily misunderstood of these eight points, I think, so pay close attention to what I'm saying and what I'm not saying in the next few minutes. Mark chapter 6, 53 to 56. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. 
And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him, Jesus, and ran about the whole region, began to bring sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages and cities and countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Expectation goes beyond simply acknowledging that healing is possible with Jesus. Point number four, or even that we ought to hope and boldly pray for healing. Point number three, what we see here in Mark 6 is that wherever Jesus is, brokenness cannot continue to exist. Now, we recognize the truth of that claim in the spiritual sense all the time. We, we rightly interpret God's holiness, God's set-apartness in his spiritual perfections to mean that God cannot coexist with sin. Sin is spiritual brokenness. Psalm 5.4, evil may not dwell with you. Isaiah 59.2, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he, he does not hear. Habakkuk 1.13, you who are of purer eyes, God, than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. God is so holy, he cannot even look upon sin. We, we, we recognize this in the spiritual sense, but throughout the gospel accounts of Jesus, we find that this principle holds true in the physical sense as well. Jesus really is so redemptive that his very presence is mutually exclusive with physical brokenness. Remember, the bleeding woman. He doesn't even have to think about it. He doesn't have to say anything or do anything. She touches his cloak. And it's simply by virtue of her physical proximity to the great physician, his presence that heals her. And here again in chapter six, we hear as many as touched, even the fringe of Jesus's garment were made well. Brokenness cannot go on existing in the presence of Jesus. It gets fixed. And that's why we see in Revelation 21, when the dwelling place of God is with man in the new heaven and the new earth, what happens? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, crying, pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. All brokenness is healed. It's restored in the presence of the Lord. But... There is a half-truth that is peddled by the prosperity, health, and wealth gospel of which we must be wary this morning. G.K. Chesterton said, a heresy is always a half-truth turned into a whole falsehood. And here is the half-truth about healing this morning. Jesus never failed to heal anyone. That's a half-truth. It's half true because if by saying Jesus never failed to heal anyone, you mean to say that every time Jesus endeavored to heal someone in the Gospels, he was 100% effective, then that is absolutely true. There's never an instance where someone comes to Jesus for healing and he is unable to perform it. But if you mean to say that Jesus healed everyone with whom he came into contact, and that Jesus' goodness constrains him to always want to heal everyone of every infirmity, then that understanding is utterly false. And there are actually, it's, it's hard to imagine that we even need to say this anymore from pulpits 
in the church today, but there are actually false teachers out there who promote the lie that a true Christian will never get sick. And that's ludicrous. I mean, I cannot even imagine the burden that that theology puts on Benny Hinn. Like, he has to go into hiding every time he catches the common cold. Christians experience physical suffering in this world for the same reasons we still experience spiritual suffering. Because the effects of sin are all around us. We live in a broken, fallen world. In Romans 8, all of creation groans to be ultimately redeemed and restored at the second coming of Christ, but that day has not come yet. And this passage, Mark 6, attests to that truth by telling us that as many as touched Jesus' garment were healed, Mark implies here that not everyone did touch it. It's only as many as touched it. It means presumably there were some who didn't or couldn't touch Jesus and thus were not healed. And we hear about that in other passages in Mark as well, where we hear Jesus healed many. And then when the crowd got too large, he'd been at it all day long, he would retire for the day, presumably leaving others behind, not healed. Jesus' 100% success rate with healing does not mean that he chose to heal 100% of the time. Nor does it mean that he heals 100% of the time today. On the contrary, the Bible explains that physical suffering and God's lack of healing, rightly understood, can even be a blessing intentionally ordained by God for our good and for his glory. And that is ultimately what our lives in this world and all of creation exists for anyway. It's for God's glory, which is point number six. Number six, healing is a means of bringing God glory. Both healing and the lack of healing are used by God to bring himself glory. Now we joke in kids ministry about kids regurgitating Sunday school answers. Jesus, God. But God's glory really is the ultimate Sunday school answer to all of life's most important questions. Why is there something rather than nothing? God's glory. Psalm 19. What is the meaning of human existence? Why are we here in the first place, God's glory? Isaiah 43, 7. How could a good God send people to hell, his glory? Romans 9. Why does God allow suffering, his glory? And as much as Jesus loves to heal, and he gets glory from healing, elsewhere, the Bible makes it absolutely clear that God also gets glory, sometimes even more glory, from letting us suffer. Romans 5, 3 through 5, we rejoice in our sufferings, Paul says, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Romans 8, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. James 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In 2 Corinthians 4, So we do not lose heart. 
Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. A biblical understanding of physical suffering flies in the face of the false gospel that says life is about maximizing my temporal personal happiness and Jesus is merely a means to that end. The biblical gospel is that our lives exist as gifts from God, not primarily for my happiness, but for his glory. And how does God get glory from my suffering? Romans 5. Walk through those passages again. Romans 5. God gets glory from using suffering to build our hope, to transfer our hope from the fleeting, empty, material things of this world that fail us, our health, our wealth, and instead proving that our hope is to be in Christ alone. Romans 8, God gets glory from using suffering to unite us with Christ and thus exalt us. In God's upside-down kingdom, the proud are humbled and the humbled are exalted. And so Jesus, the servant who suffered and died, the ultimate humiliation gets exalted, Philippians 2, to the right hand of the Father and gets the name above all other names. We are united with him in our suffering and thus glorified with him for eternity in heaven. And it brings God immense glory to grow his kingdom by including us, you and me, as adopted sons and daughters. James 1, God gets glory by using our suffering to make us more dependent on him. Admit it, you pray harder when your faith is, is in jeopardy, when you're hurting. Don't you pray harder when you're hurting, when your faith matters most, when it's all you've got left, when the only thing getting you through the day is the hope that you're clinging to, that one day all of this will be made new. When you're forced to lean not on your own strength, but on the Lord in your weakness, that is hard, but it's good, and it brings God glory. And finally, 2 Corinthians 4 God gets glory by using our suffering to keep our focus on him and on eternity. Eyes on the prize. Suffering keeps life in perspective. We can't get too attached to the things of this world. It keeps our priorities straight. Now, that's how God gets glory from our suffering. How does God get glory from our healing? What does any of this have to do with Mark Chapter 7 that you see listed in your bulletin, Mark 7. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, Jesus put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, Jesus sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute see. The mute speak. Here we see two recurring themes of Jesus's healings on display, both of which point us ultimately back to God's glory. Number one, what's the most common reaction that people have to Jesus's miracles? 
we hear they are astonished. They're amazed. Here in Mark 6, they're astonished. Mark 7, they're astonished beyond measure. In some passages, we hear explicitly that the crowds give glory to God because of the miracles they witness Jesus perform. And so healing is intended primarily for God's glory so that more people will give God more glory. But that makes recurring theme number two all the more interesting because if Jesus' miracles were intended to amaze people such that they give God glory, wouldn't you think he would want the whole world to know about them? Like, come witness what I can do with God's power. But instead, what we see, especially in this passage, because here Jesus takes this deaf man aside, and in private, he heals him in secret. It's like he doesn't want anyone to know. It emphasizes this recurring theme in the Gospel of Mark that we call the Messianic secret. Some 11 times in Mark's Gospel, we hear Jesus swear people to secrecy in an effort to keep his true identity as the Messiah under wraps. Why? Well, scholars have proposed various theories, but the most convincing is that Jesus knows that the more word about him spreads, the sooner the Pharisees will have to put an end to it. And he doesn't want to hasten that day, to expedite his crucifixion, because everywhere he goes, all around him, Jesus sees our great need for physical healing, for spiritual healing. So he wants to continue meeting those needs and extend his ministry. Jesus heals people to the glory of God and then commands them not to tell anyone about it, so as not to cut his ministry short. The only problem is, verse 36 that the more he charged them not to say anything, the more zealously they proclaimed it. We just can't keep it a secret. Jesus, you're too good. This healing is too good. Everyone needs to know about it. But here's the even more amazing thing about Jesus. Even when the crowds were so amazed, so in awe of God's glory made manifest in his son that they couldn't help but share the good news, a point by which, uh, as an aside, we might say, that should characterize our evangelism, Right? So good, just can't keep it in. Their disobedience and shouting it from the rooftops ultimately not only failed to thwart Jesus' mission, but ultimately, just like all of our failures too, Jesus actually takes it and redeems it and uses their disobedience to accomplish his very will. Because the end result of the messianic secret getting spilled, getting out, is that it did force the Pharisees' hands which did result in his crucifixion, which did result in the salvation of all who would believe. That is how God gets the most glory of all. That is how God accomplishes the most healing of all is through Christ's death on the cross. Isaiah 53, by his wounds we are healed. Point number seven It's a little bit more down-to-earth point. Healing is often accomplished through natural means. We see in Mark 8, verses 22 to 26, they came to Bethsaida. Some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. Jesus took the blind man by the hand, led him out of the village, again, in secret. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, 
they look like trees walking. And Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And Jesus said to, uh, sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. This is by far the most bizarre healing story in the Gospels. Not only because Jesus spits in a man's eyes, which, by the way, I want to see that scene in the Jesus movies. <laughs> I want to see Jim Caviezel spit in a guy's face, only to be told, uh, Jesus, thanks, but uh, I don't think it worked. Um, I can make out some vague shapes now, but you guys look like the Ents from the Lord of the Rings, and it's like me when I take out my contacts at the optometrist's office, and I'm struggling to, to make out the giant E on the poster, and I know it's an E. It's always an E. It hasn't changed, but I don't want to cheat. My vision is that bad. Uh, we hear a similar account in John chapter 9, where Jesus spits in the mud and then rubs it like a paste, like a balm in the man's eyes to heal him. What are we to make of these accounts? This one here in, in Mark, where it almost seems like Jesus needs a second try to complete the healing. What's the point? Well, for me, the point is that Jesus sometimes uses natural means to accomplish healing. It's not like healing bleeding or deafness or paralysis was easy for Jesus, but blindness, that's a whole other story, you know. The point is not that Jesus struggled to heal this man. Jesus, of course, could have snapped his fingers and healed him completely the first time in an instant, but Jesus knows that that's not how healing is often for us, right? Like maybe it's as easy as praying and simply trusting God, but maybe sometimes it takes a little spit, a little mud, a second try, an antibiotic, a surgery, these natural means of healing are not inherently bad. It doesn't mean that this blind man had any less faith than the other people Jesus healed. It doesn't mean that you and I today have any less faith if we go to the doctor. It just means that sometimes God uses natural means to heal. So of course, we pray for healing by all means when people are physically sick. But go to the doctor too. You have, for what it's worth, your pastor's recommendation to take your meds, <laughs> take your pills. It doesn't make you any less Christian, it just means that you pay attention to the natural anatomical laws that God himself established for our good. Medicine is a good gift from God. Physicians, nurses, chiropractors, you guys are good gifts from God to the rest of us. And we thank God for you. We thank God that he uses even such natural means as you to heal us. That's good. And finally, point number eight, healing is available to all who believe. Healing is available to all who believe. Mark 10, 46. And they came to Jericho and as Jesus was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Listen, this is a beautiful story. Listen, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, 
have mercy on me. So Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and ran to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Friends, maybe you're sitting here this morning thinking, well, that is great for Bartimaeus. That must be really nice to be in such close physical proximity to Jesus who's so restorative, he doesn't even have to say anything, you just touch his cloak and he heals you. To have such direct access to, to that kind of physically restorative healing presence, that must be nice. But a lot of good that does me, sitting here today. Now he's in heaven, I'm stuck here in this world full of brokenness. With chronic migraines so bad I can't even get out of bed most days. With anxiety, depression so bad I can't get out of bed. With breast cancer, with kidney cancer brain tumors, with blindness, life-threatening seizures, with a botched knee surgery, leaves me unable to walk, the broken back that never quite healed right, arthritis, infertility, dementia, schizophrenia, bipolar, a stroke that nearly took my life. That's just half our congregation I just went through. A lot of good that does me. But friends, without diminishing the real pain and the real suffering that comes from our physical ailments. We need to see this morning that there's something that we have that blind Bartimaeus only ever dreamed of. Because while he enjoyed physical proximity to Jesus, direct access to his physical restorative properties, Bartimaeus knew nothing of Jesus' atoning death, his victorious resurrection, or his intercessory mediation on our behalf with God, precisely because Jesus now sits at the right hand of the Father. And that means that you and I now enjoy something that Bartimaeus never did, that is greater than physical healing, and that is spiritual healing, spiritual proximity to God. Ephesians 2, we who were once far off, dead in our sins, have now been brought near. Direct access to God's spiritually restorative presence because of Christ's reconciling death and resurrection. We have the ultimate cure for the ultimate problem, sin. And he's actually even nearer to us than Jesus was to Bartimaeus because for all who do believe, he doesn't just stay far off in heaven and say good luck. He sends the Holy Spirit to live inside us. Talk about proximity. And I just want to end today by reinterpreting this passage from Mark 10, not as a story primarily about physical healing, but as a personal allegory and a foreshadowing of our even greater, more profoundly spiritual healing that Jesus offers you and I this morning. 
So would you do me a favor and indulge me, close your eyes, and just envision this story is you this morning, spiritually. Because perhaps you are Bartimaeus, and you have been spiritually blind since birth. A beggar. You've been living day to day, scraping by, trying to fill the void, stumbling in the darkness. And when it comes to Jesus, you finally hear about him. He finally comes into town. He finally comes into your life. You're confronted with him in a new way. Maybe you're skeptical. Maybe you're desperate. And you're ready to try anything. You just want to see. And so you cry out. Life is not working for me. The things that I put my hope, my faith, my confidence in are not working for me. You cry out. Only to have Jesus' followers rebuke you. Who do you think you are bothering Jesus like this? Upsetting our nice, orderly church way of life. Sometimes we in the church can quickly forget who we were before Jesus healed us. But you are desperate. So you cry out again for Jesus. And while others rebuke you, he invites you. He calls you. He must be the one to call you first. And he does. And before he even finishes his sentence, you come running he asks you a simple question. What do you want me to do for you? And in that moment, you realize all the wrong answers that you've responded with to that question over the course of your life. God, I want you to make me happy. I want you to make her love me. I want you to make me popular, make me rich, make me physically healthy. But in this moment, you realize for the first time your truest need, your deepest need, and you reply, Jesus, I want to see. I want to see spiritually. My need for you and your provision for me. And immediately, he opens your eyes. You once were blind, but now you see. Your faith has made you well. Friends, that is true healing. That is eternal, lasting, spiritual healing. And it's available to you, to me, today, to all who believe. How will you respond to Jesus? He stands ready to save you, asking you a simple question. What do you want me to do for you? Let's pray.